Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. She writes in a late poem, Fog, the cataclysm of the creation is still in us. We may come back as grass, be eaten, a trail will remain, a path, the next storm. Adnan is not cynical in her assessment of history as a series of violent circles, cycles through which innocents suffer. For Adnan, history and its violence necessitates a poetics of the broadest possible perspective in order to understand them, one that operates in multiple modes of representation, from the symbolic to the highly realistic. Perhaps most importantly, the violence of history requires a poetics that resides in the heart. Adnan writes in her late poem, To Be in a Time of War, quote, to search one's memory for the past residues, to indulge in insomnia, to transform matter into spirit, to cross the threshold, to abolish all signs, then go after them, to decode the future, to rust, to wonder how to digest defeat instead of vomiting it in the middle of the night and go back to one's bed and pull up the covers. Please welcome Hansarich Obrist. Thank you all for being here, and thank you so much, Andrew, for this uh, great introduction to, uh, to Ethel's work. Um, I thought to talk about the many different dimensions tonight of Ethel Adnan. It's a bit like in superstring theory. There are at least 11. Um, and um, in a way, um, I wanted to tell you also about you know, the different kind of projects um, we, we have, we've worked on together with Ethel, kind of you know, being a curator, thinking also about this idea of actually how one can bring poetry into the world of exhibitions, how one can think about exhibitions of, um, of poetry. Um, and I'm extremely delighted also that Eileen Miles is here tonight because one of the very early experiments we did with exhibition and poetry is the project Do It, where Eileen is one of the great protagonists and uh, one of the very first incarnation ever of the Do It show in the 90s happened in Iceland where we traveled with Eileen. So it's wonderful that Eileen is here and we'll talk about the exhibition today um, we did with uh, Etel uh, in um, actually at Mataf where we try to somehow explore all the aspects of her work in one show and then also about um, uh, a group show. But uh, before that I wanted to somehow talk a little bit how it all started and start actually with a quote, one of the first quotes I found of it ever, where she says, you know, there is something that links all the different things. It's what we call our person. There is a link that you don't do purposely. It's there. It's your sensitivity it's one person in different rooms. So we could say, in a way, that maybe tonight I will talk about these different rooms um, of Etel. And as she always said, you know, she um, is actually scared of houses. But that's a whole other story I'm going to talk about later. Every art is a window into a world that only art can access. Etel says, you can't define these worlds. They are epiphanies. They are visions. The very first work I saw by Etel was a long Japanese folding book in which handwritten poems and signs were combined with drawings. And I was immediately and magnetically attracted by its energy. I wanted to know more. The next day, I started to read Sid Marie Rose from 1977, which Andrew mentioned, her masterpiece and the great novel of the Lebanese Civil War. And for those of you who haven't read it, it's an incredibly urgent book to read now in the context of all these current wars. Uh, happening in the Middle East and all over the world. The book is even more urgent than it was when Etel wrote it. 
The day after reading um, uh, Sid Murray Rose, and it's a book you know one always would read in one go, it's a book one reads in one day, um, I read her extraordinary Arab Apocalypse from 1989, which addresses again the turmoil of war in the Arab world, but beyond Lebanon, and made really Adnan one of the world's most important political writers, as well as a key protagonist of the peace movement. I then ordered dozens of other books by Adnan and became increasingly aware of the many dimensions, first of all, just of the many dimensions of her writings. It's before I understood that actually many dimensions which go beyond writing. There is, uh, in writing, there is her reportage. Um, she's an incredible political journalist and the book has actually been published recently about all, uh, you know, her political texts for, for daily papers she wrote during her years in uh, Beirut. There is her fiction. Uh, like Sid Marie Rose, there are her plays, uh, her theater plays, and then, of course, her outstanding recent poetry collections, such as Sea and Fog from 2012, or um, also Seasons from 2008, where natural and meteorological phenomena are presented as a non-tangible reality, or as maybe non, one could say maybe as non-tangible things, that imperceptibly influence and transform our skins and also our souls. This was the first time really for me since high school when I read every single word that Robert Walser had ever written, including his micrograms, that I had felt the urgent need to read the complete works, every single thing a writer had ever written. So reading Adnan is really extremely addictive. And as the legendary Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish uh, once told me, um, Adnan has never written a, a bad line. Etel was born in 1925 in Beirut. In the late 50s, after her studies at the Sorbonne and at Harvard, she taught philosophy at the University of California and started to paint. Her earliest works were abstract compositions with squares of colors directly applied from the tube. Often a red square was the pivotal point of the composition, and that still you know, stays until today. Very often the color red, for her the strongest color, often pops up in her, uh, in her recent paintings as well. As Adnan told me frequently, she was interested in the immediate beauty of, of, uh, of color. During her initial years in California, she also started to make her first colorful abstract tapestries. These works, influenced by an interest in oriental rugs, are a separate dimension of her practice that she has pursued ever since, never translating her existing paintings into tapestry, something she'd never do. She uses very specific designs for her textile works through which she celebrates the vibrancy of the wool. And it's kind of fascinating because a couple of days ago I saw this exhibition um, at the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris on uh, the work of Sonia Delaunay, which is maybe the first time an exhibition on Sonia Delaunay really emphasizes her not only as a painter, but also you know, as an inventor of great textile works. And this whole idea of actually going you know, beyond the art world is something Etel always wanted with her work to do. She wants her work to have a direct impact on society. And in an almost Bauhaus kind of way, wants not only her poems, you know, but also her you know, visual work, her paintings, travel into society, why that whole, why that whole work, you know, with, with textiles and, 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 and vibrancy, as she calls it. It's again vibrancy, as always, there is energy and vibrancy, the vibrancy of the wool in these um, tapestries. Over the course of the 60s, Adnan started to move away in the work from the abstract forms, and actually, thanks to a fellow artist in San Francisco, she discovered these Japanese leporellos I mentioned initially, which were the first thing of her I, I discovered, folded little books in which she could mix drawing with writing and poetry. 
Another pivotal moment took place a decade later when Adnan moved to Sosalito, a place near San Francisco where she discovered the landscape of the Mount Tamalpais. Uh, and this magical mountain uh, uh, somehow uh, for her, it almost sort of resonates with René Domal's more analog. The Mount Tamalpais um, is for her, the, she told me, the most important encounter of, of her life. She said he's, he's her best friend. Uh, and somehow it's her obsession with this mountain that led to many paintings. And after actually more than two decades of intense contemplation to her seminal book, that's another of her outstanding books called The Mount Tamalpais, The Journey to Mount Tamalpais of 1986 which explores links between nature and, and art. As Etel told me, Mount Tamalpais became my house. We're back to the house. For Cézanne, Saint-Victor was no longer a mountain. It was an absolute. It was painting. And that is very much you know, the relationship Etel had during her time in Sosalito to the Mount Tamalpais. And the Mount Tamalpais leads us to another dimension of her work, which is basically, um, I mean, we can go to the first image. Um, the Mount Tamalpais leads us to another dimension of her work, which is the, the filmic snapshots. She made over 70 filmic snapshots of the sea, the sun, the sky. She started to make those in the 80s with a Super 8 camera on visits to New York City. She would also film what she saw from her window. So it's New York seen from the window again and again and again in these very short films. And these films were largely unknown and were then revealed for the first time in the last documenta where Caroline Christoph Bagakiev curated a big room of Etel's paintings. And also um, these films were you know, screened as part of documenta. And in these films, you have the bridges, the, the skylines, the passing ships of New York City that she observed. Uh, and that led to another dimension in her practice, the drawings and watercolors, which actually she has made daily ever since she began to draw. Um, and uh, these uh, New York drawings made with very thick black ink were soon after followed by a series of drawings of the stone bridges of, of Paris. And uh, her partner, Simone Fatal, who is uh, also a great artist, she's a great sculptor, so that could be a whole other lecture about Simone Fatal's work, um, but also a great publisher. She founded the Post Apollo Press um, and uh, actually published many uh, poetry books from all over the world, uh, as well as, of course, most of um, Etel's work. So, for example, Sid Marie Rose with this remarkable cartography of the Lebanese Civil War on the cover is a post Apollo book. But Simone Fatal uh, is also one of the main writers on Etel's work, and in her writing on uh, Etel's visual practice, she actually says that many of these works, of these drawings um, I mentioned, of the bridges, you know, but also of New York, echo somehow, somehow Baudelaire's poem, An Agonizing Sun uh, Falling Under an Arch. So the link to Baudelaire uh, is very important. It was also in Paris, uh, actually, that I met Adnan for the first time in 2007, because after having seen this Leporello and after having read all her work, I decided to make a visit uh, in her apartment and uh, studio, and a very intense collaboration started. Um, we invited her, for example, to the Serpentine Gallery's Edgeware Road project, and also, of course, our marathons, about which I will talk later. We invited her to do an issue of the Point Ironie magazine with uh, Agnes B, but foremost also we started to you know, record longer conversation about her life, which I'm going to talk about later. Uh, but one of the things which um, quite at the beginning of our friendship um, actually happened was that um, Ethel 
even if she's never really used uh, social media, I mean, she uses email, but she doesn't really use Facebook or uh, Instagram or Twitter, but she's still the reason why I am on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm gonna tell you why, because basically um, uh, we, uh, about four or five years ago, decided to actually uh, have a conversation about, about handwriting, and I then, um, about two years ago, uh, made a studio visit with Ryan Tricart in, in, uh, in LA, and um, we had, it was maybe 18 months ago, and had uh, actually breakfast with Ryan, and also the, the writer, uh, Kevin McGarry, and critic Kevin McGarry. And during that breakfast, all of a sudden, Ryan took my iPhone and downloaded the software for um, uh, basically Instagram, and then posted on his Instagram that I had joined Instagram. And all of a sudden, I had these followers and didn't really know what to do and was kind of completely lost. And then I kind of decided I definitely won't you know, photograph my daily meals, and I also am not into selfies either. So all of that was already from the outset excluded. But then I kind of you know, couldn't really find what to do. And as a curator, I thought it could be interesting to make it maybe my first kind of curated group show uh, on social media, but I couldn't really find the, the way through, and I kind of started when I met artists, I asked them to do something for Instagram, but it didn't really work because, you know, in a way, most of the artists were not on Instagram, and then in restaurants, was, I mean, we made, it was a really great dinner with Philippe Pareno, and he sort of manipulated a spoon, which became a, a magical object, and we posted that. But then I realized that magical moment couldn't really be repeated the next day, so how could it then continue? And then for weeks, you know, again, there was nothing. Until then, we went on Christmas vacation and New Year's vacation with Etel and Simon um, to Normandy. And uh, we had a long um, walk. It was very stormy. Normandy is very stormy during, you know, December. And we went on a long walk uh, to the beach, and it all of a sudden started to rain so strongly that we needed to find shelter in a nearby cafe. And so we spent a lot of time in this cafe, and you know, I started to work on my emails and uh, on, my, on my Blackberry and uh, iPhone. And then uh, and Adele started all of a sudden to take a paper napkin and started to write a poem. So I kind of watched her write this poem, and it was a completely uh, magical moment. And uh, all of a sudden, the solution was found, because I realized that I also, I remembered, of course, the conversation I had with her earlier about the disappearance of handwriting. I remembered also a text in that very moment of Umberto Eco, where he had written about the disappearance of handwriting and how could we address it, and he started to you know, sort of say that we should again send children to calligraphy courses, and it you know, didn't really sound realistic. And then, in a way, and also he started, sort of was a kind of a lament about the disappearance of handwriting. It's a very interesting text, The Guardian, published in English. But still, you know, it didn't sort of give this idea that, or this solution that one could actually reintroduce handwriting into the age of the internet. And I also thought, like, wow, we could now photograph this poem of Etel. And uh, I mean, the, the beginning of this poem of Etel, the first sentence really, the light encounters the oceans, how light on light, which was what we observed that day before the storm you know, hit the, uh, the Normandy. Um, and so um, we posted it on Instagram, and I realized, I mean, I'm meeting poets and artists and architects every day that it could just become this project that I would post sentences um, um, every day and became somehow a movement. So it's like a movement against the, the disappearance of, uh, of handwriting. And I'm going to show you now, we just selected, I mean, there are about 700 postings now on my Instagram, but we just thought for tonight, we select all the ones of Etel, because whenever I see Etel, you know, as she is at the origin of this project, she does a new sentence. And um, so there's almost like a project within the project with, with her. So I 
I want that the ocean washes our faces under the eye of the infinite. Children run faster in winter time. Human beings are the true infancy, maybe, of the world. It's why we celebrate Christmas. And then the thing about maps um, is basically um, a project we um, we did about cartography in the in the 21st century. So the idea was actually uh, to invite artists and scientists and, and, and poets and also technologists, obviously, because cartography changes a lot through the internet to kind of um, propose maps for the 21st century. And that's kind of Etel's statement or definition of a, of a map. And that sort of whole idea of, of instability and the mind, kind of comparing these mapping to the mind's uh, instability. And that's the map she came up with. It's urgent to think whilst walking. So it leads us back to Robert Walser in a funny way, you know? The idea of, I don't know. Uh, we talked actually with Etel about this amazing book of Carl Selig, which obviously Robert Walser in the last years of his life stopped um, writing and sort of thought walking is writing. And so he went on these endless walks. And there's this wonderful book Carl Selig wrote on his walks with Robert Walser. And then Etel's work with ink pots have obviously to do with my movement against the disappearance of handwriting, because not only handwriting disappears, I mean, ink pots are an endangered species. And um, uh, so she has actually obsessively drawn ink pots over many, many decades. And these leporellos, which unfold, uh, you know, in many of them, sort of handwriting of poetry and her visual practice come together. But then there are these endless, endless leporellos of hundreds and hundreds of ink pots kind of celebrating ink pots. I am afraid or I'm scared by death, but I'm even more scared by immortality. I wonder why. Should one not make all one's meetings under trees or under the trees? More ink pots? And that's the most recent one, when we met in London uh, a few weeks ago. Oh, and that's actually the most recent one. That was sort of within two days. Um, that actually trees move uh, differently uh, from us, because they renew themselves. So then the idea came, you know, at a certain moment to combine all the dimensions of Etel I've kind of outlined in an exhibition and how could one actually make this visual in, in a show. It felt also important because her work obviously 
has been published a lot in, uh, um, in, in English and also in, uh, in France, where she spends most of the time. But it felt important to kind of uh, show to a public in the Middle East how practice and you know, do a very big book in both English and, uh, and Arabic. Uh, so this exhibition uh, happened in, uh, at Mataf, at the Arab Museum of, uh, of Modern Art, and we worked with her. Uh, on this book, Skira published, but also on the idea, actually, for the first time, you know, within a context of a show, bring together these, these many dimensions. So here you see, for example, uh, some of um, the paintings. Uh, so many of them are of the Mount Tamar Pais, and then some of them are abstract paintings. The drawings I mentioned, and also the tapestries. And so you can also see the tapestries are different drawings, so they're not never copied from you know, what happens in the paintings. They're sort of separate. Here are the films. They're extremely short films, so they're almost like you know, uh, snapshots or sort of sketches. And, and uh, she's kind of, uh, together with a friend, glued them together in a way into a longer sequence. Many, many drawings. Uh, so it's really the daily practice of drawing in her work. The polar drawings have to do also with you know, journeys to other planets. And uh, endless drawings of, uh, of Mount Tamalpais. And then the idea you know, of also, of course, having all the books in an exhibition and how you know, there was a kind of a, a library and, uh, and reading tables and the possibility to look into. And, and also in the book, I mean, the idea was publish this um, very thick book with uh, basically uh, would also be for the first time a longer bibliography that one would have actually all her books uh, gathered together because many, many of these sort of pamphlets she did have been published by very small publishers and, uh, uh, and many of them are artist books where she was also involved you know, in the design. So that's this part. And then, of course, the idea of what to do with these leporellos because the leporellos are really the work where it all comes together, no? the, the visual work, the poetic work. So we developed this vitrine so that uh, one could actually see them entirely and you know, they would be uh, all open. And obviously, you know, all of this is unpublished because one could actually imagine that, you know, many of these leporellos could be made into facsimiles and could be, uh, could be printed. It's also fascinating that at the beginning of the practice, she um, was very, you know, very often using poems by friends, poet friends of hers, uh, would then copy these poems and make drawings with them and then send the leporello to the poet whose text she uses. So many of these are actually, you know, the early ones from 20, 30 years ago are actually in the collection, you know, of poets whose text she, she work on. So here you see how the writing and the drawing, no, come together. And in a way, um, Parallel to all of this, we did these endless conversations, and I thought, you know, it might be uh, um, maybe interesting to read a few extracts from these conversations. It's uh, so far we've done about 14 conversations with her about, you know, all the different aspects of the work and all the different sort of periods in in, in her work. But I thought it's maybe interesting to begin with the beginning and with sort of her very first uh, um, 
poem in English, the first ever published, which came out in 1961 in the literary review called the SB Gazette. And uh, here uh, it goes. Do not give me a sword, you gave me a gun. Do not give me a wife, you gave me the war. Do not give me roses, you gave me tear gases. Do not give me a scar, you took away my eyes. I gave you a man, you gave me a bum. Do not give me tears, you gave me icy words. Do not give me orphans, you gave me corpses. Do not give me liberty, you gave me duty. Do not give me a spaceship, you took away my legs. I gave you a man, you gave me a bum. The ballad of the lonely night in present day America. So basically, um, when I asked her what inspired her to, to write poetry um, and how this all started, I mean, this is the first published poem, it tells answers, and these are quotes from the conversation. I was educated as a literary, at the Literary Institute before it was integrated into the university called L'Ecole des Lettres in Beirut. My heroes were Charles Baudelaire, Gérard de Nerval, and Arthur Rimbaud. I knew them all by heart. I read them over and over. Then when I was in America a long time ago, in January 1955, I studied at Berkeley and Harvard. I didn't start reading American poetry until later in the 1960s. At that time, I was reading poets who were against the war because I was too. Then there are, of course, Ezra Pound and the great American poets. Now, since I live in America and I write in English, I know the current generation of poets pretty well. I asked her then about her beginnings by speaking Greek and Turkish, which is a result of the multilingualism of the Ottoman Empire, as one might say, but also because of her parents. In one interview I found, a very early interview, Etel said that in spite of this multilingualism, uh, um, actually she had evolved for herself an Arab identity. And I asked her somehow to tell me more about this Arab identity and how she would sort of talk about Arabic poetry. Here the quote. You know, we talk a lot about identity because it's such an evasive concept. I think identity is partly a choice. We forget that identity is not an objective given. The Arabic language has a certain aura for me, partly because we were forbidden to learn it in the French schools, and we were punished if we even spoke it. And because we spoke it, neither at school nor at home, I was locked out of it. I speak it in the street, but I can't write a poem in Arabic. This means I've made Arabic into a myth, into a kind of lost paradise. Then there are the problems of the Arab world. If the Arab world weren't forever at war and so much under attack, maybe I wouldn't have been Arab. But the daily politics of it keep me from getting complacent, not only because of what's happened in Palestine, but the Algerian war and even the wars between Arabs. It never ends. Coup d'etat in countries like Syria, it breaks my heart. The Arab world is a world that worries me that interests me, that attracts me. I would have had another life if I had written in Arabic. I wouldn't have had the one I've had. So in a way, so that's the end of the quote, so in a way, we could maybe say that uh, her life in Arabic is, is, or her life lived in Arabic is an unrealized dream. So I asked her then about her sources of inspiration from Arabic literature, which I think that somehow interesting who are the Arabic writers, no? Who, who inspired her? Because she mentioned the French writers, uh, so I wanted to know who are her inspirations from Arabic language. Hear her answer? Bada Shakir al-Sayyab, 
is my favorite Arabic poet. I often come back to him because he is a heart-rending figure, an extraordinary being, a poet who writes of the earth, but not of the European earth, not of farmers. There are no farmers in the Arab world. There is some agriculture, but the idea of the land that you have in English or of la terre in French doesn't exist in the Arab world. It's a desert. And even when it's planted, we are aware of the desert. Arab poetry is interested in the surface of the planet. In Bada's work, we feel the sandstorms, the drought. These are cosmic events. Earth is a cosmic event. Sheikh Imam was an Egyptian singer who was blind and was, was remarkably courageous. They put him in prison. Imagine putting a blind man in prison. So he said, I don't care, I'm blind anyway. He had a real sense of humor. So that's another great inspiration for her. First Bada Shakir al-Sayyab and then Sheikh Imam. Maybe a few more quotes here from uh, the conversation. I then kind of ask her, uh, actually, that when I speak to artists from the Middle East, they don't feel at all comfortable with this term, Middle East. There somehow are extraordinary artistic scenes or centers in cities like Beirut, Istanbul, Tehran, Cairo, and Tel Aviv. And in a way, um, all these constructions, no, like Middle East, seem artificial constructions. So uh, to Etel, here is her quote about that. They are and they aren't. That is to say, there is more Islamic art in most Persian miniature paintings than there are religious writings. Of course, this isn't true of all miniature paintings. The Shaman Nameh isn't at all religious. So already we have to be careful when describing the art of the past. But Islam is an important common denominator, a bit like Christianity during the Middle Ages. You can certainly speak of the art of Islamic countries. But today, I think we need to make a bit more of a distinction. Barashakir al-Sayyid, for example, isn't Islamic in the least. When I then ask her again about this notion of the Middle East, which many artists um, wonder if it's you know, the right notion, Etel says, I don't like the expression Middle East. I prefer to say the Mashrik, just as we say the Maghreb when referring to North Africa. Mashrik means the place where the sun rises. It also means the rays of light. So it's a term which could cover many Arab countries. I then wanted to know if Iran was part of the Mashrik. No, I think Iran is very close to the Arab world, but historically, the Mashrik is the Eastern Arab world. So we can say the Mashrik and Iran. Why not? Arabs themselves say the Mashrik, but also make the mistake of saying the Middle East, which is a name that comes from Britain, calling it halfway down the spice route to the Indies. It's a colonial notion. So I thought that's kind of interesting in relation to uh, many, you know, kind of also exhibitions and projects, you know, using this terminology of artists, you know, from the Middle East. So it tells us we should say artists from the Mashrik. Um, I then wanted to talk with her about calligraphy. Um, and uh, we often spoke about Zaha Hadid and her use of calligraphy, which is the very beginning you know, of her architecture before she ever used a computer. Uh, and um, in a way, um, uh, Etel is very fascinated by architecture because as 
mentioned initially, it's a kind of unrealized project to be um, an architect, which historic circumstances made impossible for her, but she still um, somehow feels that that was always part of her wish or her desire. Um, so I wanted to ask her about calligraphy and uh, in a way how actually artists and architects are linked by calligraphy. And here is her quote. It's true, they are all linked by calligraphy. In the visual arts, in the Islamic world, sculpture and portraiture were discouraged. Also, there are many portraits of Ottoman sultans after the 16th century. But there is a real passion for writing because Islamic culture is based on a book, the Quran. Writing is seen as the most magical of arts and the most important of religious arts because it brings you closer to the Quran and therefore to the direct word of God. There is a veneration for writing that goes all the way back when you think of the Babylonian tablets and the importance of writing in these early cultures. The prestige of the written word unites all of Asia. We can go beyond the Islamic world and say that all of the Orient favors the written word. Writing is a form of drawing. Also, we don't notice it. So I then you know, ask her about the handwriting and the thing you know, we, I discussed earlier in relation to her Instagrams, her post-its. She says, you know, that's why when you receive a letter, you can immediately tell something by the writing on the envelope. Writing is a sacred thing, and historically, writing is a secret. So Umberto Eco is right. If we lose writing, we lose an enormous amount of meaning, because writing, like drawing, is an art. And we lose everything we have to say when we lose writing, because something written by hand says more than just words. It reflects a psychological state. A friend once wrote to me, I'm very worried for you. Your handwriting changed in your letter. Writing itself is a signifier. Um, we, we have in many conversations of Etel also talked, of course, about memory and the kind of importance of memory. And I think in a way, memory is such a crucial topic because we in the age of information, there is obviously more and more information. But as Rem Cole has once pointed out, that maybe that kind of explosion of memory doesn't, uh, sorry, this explosion of information doesn't necessarily mean that there is more memory. And as he said, maybe we could actually even think that amnesia is at the core of the digital age. So I was kind of wondering what Etel thought of memory. And uh, I thought it was interesting because in a way, a lot of my interview project uh, and these sort of so far 2,400 hours of conversations I've recorded, um, of which about in these 14 conversations, probably about 30 hours with Etel, are for me a kind of a protest against forgetting. And speaking about this with the artist Christodoulos Panayotou from Cyprus, um, he emailed me um, actually recently about the concept of historophimia in ancient Greece, which is indicating posthumous glory, as well as intellectual, philosophical, and also artistic heritage. It has a kind of continuity. And uh, it made me think of Derek Charman, because in a documentary, English filmmaker Derek Charman was asked how he wanted to be remembered, and he replied that it would be wonderful if everything evaporated. He had a quote, if I could take my works with me and totally disappear, end of quote. So I asked Etel, how would you respond to this question, are we writing for our own time or for the future? And here is Etel's answer. I think that right now we need to actively remember even more than we have in the past because in the past, memory essentially produced itself. We lived in a city, and in this city was a library, museums, friends. 
There was already a memory in its stone and in the people who knew them. Today, because of this scattering, we are constantly faced with the void. Entire cities have been destroyed in our time. Before the war, we didn't need to think about Beirut because Beirut was there. But the Beirut of the 1960s has disappeared. So if memory doesn't preserve that Beirut, it will be gone forever. And we have to make a real effort to remember it. And this is going to be more and more true in other places. Even in France, things have changed so much that we no longer know how to read even the things that have endured. We see a cathedral, but we don't see it in the way the people who build it saw it. It takes a formidable cultural effort to see. Just because something is in front of us doesn't mean we are able to see it. So that's end of Etel's quote on memory. Maybe a few more images um, here of the Leporellos. Here you can see what I mentioned before, all no, these endless, endless, endless import kind of repetition and difference. And in a way, this idea of you know how to exhibit Etel and how to exhibit poetry in an exhibition leads us to another project I wanted to talk about, which is the 89 plus um, exhibition, uh, the Luma Foundation in Zurich, which Simon Caste and I um, co-curated. And uh, I will show you here a few images. The architecture um, was actually developed by the Japanese architects of Atelier Bauwau. Um, maybe a few words first about 89 Plus, which is also how we met Andrew actually for the first time. 89 Plus is a long-term international multi-platform research, which Simon and I founded uh, about two years ago, which is investigating the generation of innovators of all disciplines born in or after 1989. Without forecasting artistic trends or predicting future creation, 89 Plus manifests itself through panels, books, periodicals, exhibitions, and residencies, bringing together individuals from a generation whose voices are only starting to be heard, yet which accounts for almost half of the world's population. Marked by several paradigm-shifting events, the year 1989 saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the start of the post-Cold War period, and also the introduction of the World Wide Web. It's in 1989 that Tim Berners-Lee came up with this idea and invented the World Wide Web. But it also marks the beginning of the universal availability in this sense of the internet. Positing a relationship between these world-changing events and creative production at large, 89 Plus introduces the work of some of this generation most inspiring protagonists. So we began this in January 2013 at the DLD uh, conference in Munich, and we've researched since then internationally in Hong Kong, uh, but also in Singapore, uh, more recently also in Cape Town and Rio, um, in New York City, actually as part of the MoMA PS1 show Expo One. Um, and then there is a whole series of residencies with many different partners uh, and institutions where actually artists of that generation are invited to be in residencies. So as a research platform, it's of course based on a database of so far more than 5,000 practitioners. Uh, so we curate, you know, taking this database as a this ever-growing database as a point of departure, and 
um, uh, and the whole research is ongoing. We see it as a kind of a 10, at least a 20-year kind of project. We, we then felt at a certain moment that the time has come to, to do the first exhibition earlier this year. And uh, in a way, we observed very early on with Simon looking at these many, many, many artists that actually the link to poetry was very, very strong. That many artists were both visual artists and also poets. Um, and we thought that that was incredibly fascinating and we wanted to sort of come up in Zurich with a lab and a, an exhibition at the Luma Foundation in the Westbau space, which we co-curated together with Kenneth Goldsmith and Dennis Nelson uh, and Ubu Web. And there was also a whole film selection curated by Kevin McGarry. The show's title, Poetry Will Be Made By All, um, is actually very connected to a precedent, the historic precedent of 1969 from the Moderna Museet in Stockholm. And the Moderna Museet had this amazing moment of laboratory years to which now Daniel Birnbaum, the current director, connects so strongly, which is basically uh, a moment when Pontus Hultem brought in all the disciplines into the, into the museum and uh, was a moment when the Black Panthers were, you know, very present in the, in the Moderna Museet, but it was also the museum as a laboratory for many new ideas. So obviously it was important to do a poetry show. So Pontus invited Ronald Hunt to do this show, um, actually in uh, 69 called Transform the World, Poetry Must Be Made by All. And it's one of the very few in Europe sort of historic precedents, one can say where a big museum you know, would do an exhibition bringing poetry into the museum and thinking in an experimental way how one can actually spatialize poetry and think about uh, you know, a poetry lab within uh, a museum as an institution. And that sort of we felt had found a renewed importance within today's digital information networks. So we um, invited for the opening days of the exhibition, end of January this year, readings and performances by many poets of the 89 plus generation, such as Harry Burke or Andrew Durbin, or Shinka Firunz, or Sophia Lafraga, or Ho Rui An, or Sang Wu Lee, Trisha Lowe, uh, Steve Rogenbach, Dana Yago, who all performed alongside more established mentors like Caroline Bergwall, or Christian Bock, or Anton Bruhin, or Tracy Morris, or Eugenie Putra, or of course, Etel Adnan. Many of the uh, poets we you know, invited mentioned Etel as their great inspiration, so we felt important to have Etel in, uh, in Zurich. Here you can see a little bit how uh, you know, the laboratory worked. The idea was also to develop a book machine so uh, that actually uh, all the activities, the poets in residence, so throughout the exhibition we had poets in residence in Zurich, and that these activities would bring poets into a productive dialogue with the visitors of the exhibition as also uh, a robust network of young poets worldwide. So we worked with UbuWeb on this idea of you know, poetry books printed on demand by lulu.com. And so a thousand books um, were actually um, printed and um, obviously became little by little, as you can see here in the display of Bow Wow, part of the exhibition. So whilst actually at the beginning, you know, the exhibition was rather empty, um, it sort of you know, more and more developed the density. We also felt very important to uh, make some homages in the exhibition, so we worked with Augusto de Campos, um, who sent several uh, poems, actually, and that sort of whole dialogue he had, uh, being one of the pioneers of Brazilian concrete poetry, with, of course, Switzerland, because Eugen Gomringer's 89th anniversary coincided with our 89 plus event. And it was wonderful because 
having worked with Argen Gomringer in the past several times, he had sent me this letter announcing that next year, actually in 15, he will turn 90 and evoking this idea that maybe we could do something for his 90th anniversary, but we felt for 89 plus, it would be wonderful to actually celebrate his 89th anniversary in Zurich. Uh, and uh, so here you see a few more images of the, of the show and you know, all the readings which happened, the opening days with Tracy Morris, reading, or Amalia Ullmann, or Anton Bruhin's sonic reading. And here Eugen Gombringer on the occasion of his 89th anniversary, the pioneer of, um, of concrete poetry. Dina Iago and Karl Holmquist. And then Andrew Darwin as avatar of Ed Atkins performing the piece of, um, of Ed. Another project with Etel, uh, the uh, Extinction Marathon, Andrew mentioned that in, um, in, the, uh, in the introduction. Um, in a way, it felt very urgent to uh, develop something about extinction. It grew out of a dialogue with uh, Gustav Metzger. Uh, Gustav Metzger, the artist whom we exhibited at the Serpentine Gallery in 2009 with his show Decades, 1959 to 2009. Gustav, ever since the 50s, worked on this idea of extinction. He uh, is the pioneer of autodestructive art um, uh, and actually uh, has for a long, long time told us that he feels that an extinction marathon is what we, what we should do. So after working ever since 2009 with him on these ideas, and his idea really, here is a quote somehow summarizing his intentions. As artists, we need to take a stand against the ongoing erasure of species, even where there is little chance of ultimate success. It is our privilege and our duty to be at the forefront of the struggle. While humanity has moved through extreme crises in the past, Time and speed are of the essence. So in a way, the idea of making a reflexive overview and a call to action as a two-day event, we invited basically practitioners from all discipline to address visions of the future, you know, in their scientific, artistic, and also literary ramifications. So that was the subtitle, it's sort of it's Extinction Marathon Visions of the Future, addressing questions such as what is extinction and what are we losing? How do we understand global change on a massive scale? How can an individual understand themselves in relation to a collective responsibility? How can an individual understand themselves in relation to a collective responsibility? How can artists, scientists, and thinkers imagine new visions of the future? How has the specter of endings and collapse come to inform artistic and literary practice? What happens after the end has come and gone. What to do next? So the two-day event was live streamed by the space.org and you can see it online also on the Serpentine website. And we also worked with an online platform, so with our team. So Julia Peyton Johnson and I worked with our team with Jochen Volz and Lucia Pietro Justi and Claude Agil and our digital curator, Ben Vickers, on a platform um, on the marathon, the, you know, the physical marathon, which uh, took place over two days, and then a digital platform called Extinctly, which you can follow online, so it's extinct, extinct.ly, and that was designed on the principle that long-term engagement, collective research, and collaborations are required 
to face an uncertain future. We can't talk about extinction and then do it as a one-off, you know, and move on because nothing is obviously solved after these two days. So the idea was to do this again, like 89 plus, you know, these are projects which last over 10, 20, hopefully years or, or longer. Um, and so the extinctly platforms gathers data about global resource, deple resource depletion, sorry, about conflict zones and also climate change scenarios, as well as artist projects and activist calls to, to action. So for example, Ed Atkins project, mentioned him before, of Andrew performing his avatar, um, Ed Atkins' performance, basically piece, his work on Extinctly started the day the marathon ended and will you know, develop over the next uh, 10, 10 years. Um, you see here the space in which the marathon happens, which is basically our new space, the Serpentine Sackler space designed by Zaha Hadid. You see the stage platform for the Extinction Marathon designed by the artist Heather Philipson. And then some of these uh, discussions, readings. I mean, the marathon as a format uh, came about in 2005. And it's kind of sometimes really fascinating if one is invited in another world to do something. You know, so obviously, I mean, the art world mostly and um, curate exhibitions in the art world. But I always believe that if you want to understand the forces which are effective in visual arts, that we need to understand what's happening in poetry, in music, in literature, in art, uh, in architecture, in science, in all the other disciplines. Um, and so it then occurs sometimes that one would all of a sudden you know, be invited in one of these other contexts to do something. And that's what happened in 2005. I was all of a sudden invited in the theater context of a theater festival in Stuttgart and the, uh, by the late Marit Zimmermann to kind of do a theatrical performance. And I explained to her that you know, I'm not a playwright and I just wouldn't really know what to do. But she, you know, she knew my interview project and she said you know, that many of these interviews could actually be staged because they're almost like they like, they like plays. So I still felt that that was somehow difficult. Um, but then suddenly we came up with this idea that we could actually do uh, a marathon, that somehow it could be, because I was very inspired by this book by, by Blanchot and by the idea of, you know, of infinite conversations. And so um, the idea would be that we would do a Stuttgart infinite conversation. I would just be on stage and talk to different practitioners from Stuttgart. And the idea was that we would actually break this idea that, you know, you have readings uh, in the poetry world and then um, basically mostly we observed that a lot at the Serpentine year when we invite the poet mostly the poetry world will come when we invite an architect mostly the architecture world will come when we have a visual artist mostly the art world will come so we want to come up with a format which breaks that you know, so that basically we would have a mathematician speak after a poet and speak after an artist and all of a sudden you know people would stay and see things they would never have seen otherwise and it would create this kind of you know platform and the idea is that it's a sketch you no know, how we would wish that to happen every day so it would be somehow great that the marathon would last 365 days and it could become an entire institution, maybe a new kind of Black Mountain College. So that was somehow the idea of this format. It happened obviously then at the Serpentine in a more you know, persistent or continuous way because when I moved to London in 2006 as co-director of the Serpentine working with Julia Payton-Johns, the director, she had come up earlier already in 2000 with this wonderful idea of the pavilions where she basically would commission every summer another architect to design a pavilion in front of the Serpentine. So it would become always a new institution. It would question the old institution and create a new institution with new content. Uh, and that's obviously the big problem you know, of, of institutions. Why, so while Cedric Price always said it should be with institutions like with, um, with 
other things. There should be an expiry date. They should have a limited lifespan because at a certain moment, you know, it becomes rigid or repetitive or whatever. And the laboratory, I mean, very often, you know, institutions astonishingly declare actually themselves that the laboratory years are over. So how can one, you know, within an institution maintain the permanence of laboratory years? And so this idea to actually every year commission a kind of a new institution for three months, you know, to re-kind of define everything seemed great. And so we combined Julia's invention with the pavilions with my idea of the marathons. And the two things were kind of, you know, uh, became inseparable. And that's the kind of idea how this evolved. And there was a manifesto marathon. Uh, we did a poetry marathon also, um, where we brought together uh, poets and visual artists, you know, and, and uh, in, in Katsuo Sejima's and Ryo Nishisawa's Sana uh, pavilion this year. It was with Gustav, the uh, extinction marathon. So here are a few more images. That's the um, living sculpture by Gilbert and Charge about extinction. That's uh, Lily Cole performing a world premiere of Yoko Ono, an amazing new sound piece of Yoko Ono um, about extinction, about surrendering to peace and, and distributing little bells. And obviously this idea that wow, is one of the most extreme forms of, um, of extinction. Uh, brings us also back to, um, to Etel Adnan, because Etel actually read uh, from the Arabic apocalypse in, um, in the marathon. Yeah, Katya Novitskova, uh, an installation which happened parallel to the marathon of uh, extinct species. And obviously, uh, the sort of whole idea, the range of topics of the marathon, was not only you know, the extinction of, of, of species, that was obviously an important part. And as A.S. Byatt told us when we prepared the marathon, she said we should you know, not only focus uh, on these few iconic animals which risk to be extincted, on which everybody focuses, like the panda, which is the thing that are all these microorganisms which disappear. And when I actually interviewed Timothy Martin, he, burned, you know, he burst out in tears during the interview telling me about the more than 40% of all species which had disappeared over the last couple of decades. And a lot of them are you know, not spectacular kind of uh, uh, visible species, but microorganism. And A.S. Byatt then said, and it's a question we can maybe ask all ourselves today here as well, you know, when is the last time we have seen uh, a centipede? And here at El, in the Extinction Marathon, uh, reading from uh, the Arab apocalypse. But it not only read from the Arab apocalypse, she also said it's incredibly important that we think of the American poet Joanne Kaiger. Uh, so she made a reading of Joanne Kaiger, and I'm now very, very happy uh, to invite Andrew to read for us the poem Etel Chose of Joanne Kaiger. How could you forget me so quickly? But the way you are reached, touched, awakened by the world continues. The same way you yourself pass along a gratefully given lineage of existence, each one, everything, perfect as is. Like the moon going down never really leaves the sky, so existence never quits, never began, never ended. You see in this moment, so sorry it will never be like this again. But when has the present ever been singular? Everything with language, with the language of distinction, with sorrow, with melancholy, with sweet appreciation of an extinguished future when water becomes a state of being.
So I thought it's nice that we conclude with this poem of Joan Kaga, and thank you all very, very much for being here. Thank you. And there is also maybe a paragraph we can quickly read, because whilst actually it came to my mind when I didn't plan this, but when Andrew read the John Kiger poem, I thought maybe we could read a paragraph from the other text Etel read, you know, of the Arab apocalypse, which is her sort of comment on extinction. It's her 1989 book. And again, it's an incredibly urgent book for all of you, who, those who haven't read it, to read, because it resonates extremely with what's happening in the world right now. And it's written in the wake of the Lebanese civil war. Um, and, and basically shows what she says, that war is the worst form of extinction. Here a quote. It's not in the lineage of death and resurrection. War kills modern people. It kills ways of life. It kills equality of life. It kills what is human in life. And in that sense, it is the most serious form of extinction. When the war in Lebanon started, I had a feeling that not only was it going to last a long time, but I feared that it would generate other wars. The beginning of an ongoing apocalyptic era for that part of the world. And up to now, that has been unfortunately true. It has become an unceasing, searing, unrelenting extinction. So that's an extract from the Arabic, Arabic apocalypse. Are there, are there questions? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very interesting, and I think in a way maybe I should sort of begin with the beginning, you know, how it how it all started, because you know I was born in Zurich, and and growing up in Zurich, you know, it's the city of Dada, and and so for me in a way that sort of uh, dialogue there always was between art and poetry, you know, was so present in in Dada. It was extremely present also in surrealism, and then in a way, so I kind of grew up with the fact of that being a fact that it exists, that poets and artists work together, that they do books together, that you know. And very often, um, uh, poets would also be visual artists, and visual artists would also write poetry, and uh, and that was somehow, you know, 
it seemed a given. And then, you know, I, I met Leonora Carrington, and uh, obviously in surrealism, that was extremely present as well. But then, at a certain point, maybe when I was 19 or so, uh, I went to see Cy Twombly in Rome and uh, sort of um, uh, made a studio visit with him. And it was really fascinating because he showed me a lot of manuscripts of poets. He was sort of collecting manuscripts, original manuscripts of poets. So the handwriting already started there. And he sort of says he doesn't understand the art world having you know, so much less interest in, in poetry. And, 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 and I suddenly kind of you know, realized that, that, that maybe he was, he was right. And I then met more and more artists you know, of my own generation. And I met more and more artists and, uh, you know, in the visual art world. And I kept asking them, who are the poets of your generation you're working with? And they it would be a big silence always. And so in a way, that's how maybe this urgency was born to kind of, it was really Twombly who drew my, my attention to it, to, to kind of bring it again together in a way. And then it's kind of fascinating that, you know, we did lots of projects trying to achieve this. I, I then did an exhibition in the, in the Locker House in, in Granada because I do these exhibitions in house museums because I, you know, having started my activity of curating in my kitchen, um, I've always liked curating in very intimate sort of houses. And so besides the bigger shows, I always continue to do such house museum exhibitions. So uh, recently in the Lina Bobardi house in, in, in uh, Sao Paulo, the architect Lina Bobardi. But before that, in the, in the house of, of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, um, it was again an idea of Cy Twombly, who did this amazing drawing, Verde que te quiero verde, of you know of a of a Lorca poem, which was the point of departure of this show, and so we invited uh, poets and artists to you know to Granada to exchange and have dialogues and do books together and all kinds of things together. But, but it was still very you know fragmented because it just it was junction making. There's always this idea of um, of junction making, which I think is what curating you know is. It's not only making junctions between objects, but it's also, I mean, there are objects and then there are quasi objects, as Michel Serre says, uh, objects which only gain meaning when we interact with them. So objects, quasi objects, and there are non objects, you know, which would be life. Um, and then there would be hyper-objects, you know, as Timothy Martin would say, which climate change would be a hyper-object, for example. So, um, so, so curating is kind of making junctions, you know, somewhere between objects and objects and non-objects and quasi-objects and, and hyper-objects, you know, in a, in a way. So junction-making, yes, it was an activity of junction-making through this locker show and, um, and then uh, um, different, you know, works were born there. Uh, John John developed the fountain, uh, you know, where poems would be locker poems, and his poems would be underwater. And um, uh, we had lots of readings, and and uh, and the locker house became again this lab for a possible encounter. But you know, as I said, it was sort of you know very uh, rarefied moments. And then all of a sudden, when we started with CMR 89 plus, we realized that there was so much more of this dialogue happening in that generation, and that it just happened again and again wherever we went. We made research in South Africa, we made research in Singapore, we made research in Rio, and everywhere we met you know, poets who would also do exhibitions, and, um, uh, and, 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 and basically artists, visual artists who would do exhibitions but write poetry. And so then all of a sudden out of that you know, grew, uh, grew the show. So that's somehow the genesis, how this came about. But it really is about you know, having, this, having this exchange. And I would say, I mean, Twombly, um, told me about the, 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 the Black Mountain College Mound, and then I went to see John Chamberlain at some point, and he spoke about Creedy being at Black Mountain College and about that dialogue with poetry happening there. So then obviously we can happen also, you know, can sort of wonder where that happens now in, 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 you know, in art schools, in a way, and, and how we can maybe be re, um, 
reintroduced into, uh, into, into art schools would be somehow, somehow interesting. So I don't really have a, a theory about it, but it's a practice. And I kind of think when we look at very exciting moments in art history, that it has always existed, this bridge. No? And, and, and then we have the realization at a certain moment when it doesn't exist that something is missing. And then I think, you know, in a very sort of direct way, how to address that missing thing. And at the moment, you know, and that's the interesting thing about the 89 plus, generation is that it doesn't seem to be missing, we just had to map it in a way because it's actually, it's actually there. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.